Hope everybody's doing well today. Uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be continuing our time through the Gospel of Mark. And I hope that you will be as encouraged today by this text as I have been in preparing it. And I hope that God's Word and the beauty of the Gospel will come alive to all of us today. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to look into God's Word together uh, as we look at this text together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you that it frees us from having to rely on ourselves and it causes us to understand that we are to fully rely on Christ. Father, we thank you that we sinful, wretched, flawed, failed people who have no hope in and of ourselves to be found right in you. Father, you put forward your perfect son in our place to take on him all of our shame and all of our sin and all of the punishment that we deserve so by, that by faith and repentance and rest and free grace in him that we could have hope that you see us as you see him. May we see that in our text today. May it come alive to us through our text today. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I said, open your Bibles to Mark chapter two. We're gonna hop around to a couple of places today. Uh, even going all the way back to the clean white pages of the Old Testament, uh, where sometimes we, we may not go too often. Um, when I was a kid growing up, there was a phrase that my mom and dad would use often, and I would also hear other places in and around, and this phrase was always, just the facts, ma'am. And this phrase was attached to a TV show from the 1960s called Dragnet. And I can remember the words that were attributed to the character Joe Friday. And typically it was when someone was belaboring a point and was going on and on and on and they just needed to land the plane, someone would say this. Or as often was the case in my home, it was when I was either trying to exaggerate a situation or avoid the truth of a situation altogether to stay out of trouble. My mom and dad would lovingly remind me, uh, just the facts, Blake. And Typically, what we're saying there when we say this is we just need to get down to the truth at its simplest form. When something needs to be investigated, we just need the facts and we don't want anything more to be added. And there's only a couple of things that are wrong with that phrase. One of those is that oftentimes when we're trying to get to the facts, if we just stick to the facts, we miss the nuance of the facts. How when we're collecting evidence or information, how one person sees a situation can be far different than how another person sees a situation. Both of them seemingly seeing the situation in a factual way. And the more facts pile up, we can take something that is seemingly simple and it becomes seemingly complicated. But further, and this is also important to know, is that this famous phrase was actually never uttered by that character in that show. These words that are even the title to the biography of the man who played the character and was the producer of the show. He never actually said those words. Just the facts, unless they change over time. Our text today is going to show us something similar. We are going to see in these six simple verses, something that at first glance should not be difficult to understand or discern. But what we will ultimately find is the heart of an issue that exposes the need to let man-made rule reign over God-instituted principle and directive. 
And we're going to see this today by asking three questions from our text. The first question that we are going to ask that comes up from the text is, what exactly is the Sabbath? Or what was the Sabbath? If you grew up in church or in Sunday school, you may feel like you know the answer to the question, at least in a loose form. If you have no understanding of growing up in church, but you do have some understanding or knowledge of the Ten Commandments, then you may feel like you know something about this word as well. If you are here today or you're watching at home and you have no knowledge or context of this, don't worry. Soon you are going to see how complicated something became that should have been extraordinarily simple. Simply put, in its simplest form, the Sabbath was to be a day of rest. It was a day that was instituted by God to allow all people, specifically his people, to enjoy rest from their work and their labor. And so for us to answer this question in its fullness, we have to go back to Exodus 31. Now we could go to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 to the actual Ten Commandments, but we're going to go to Exodus 31 because it tells us what is important from the other two passages while adding why the Sabbath was created in the first place. So you listen as I read from Exodus 31, verses 13 through 17. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a, is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So here in these verses, we see why the Sabbath was instituted and also what the expectation was. The Sabbath was instituted to serve as a reminder to rest in all that God has done. No work to be done. All is good and completed. Just rest. As it mentions in the passages in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, this is put in place in the pattern of the days of creation, where God created in six and rested on the seventh. The pattern is set for rest and for remembrance. Work six, rest one, reset for the upcoming week's labor. But also here we need to know that this was a special day specifically between the Lord and his people. Look at verse 13 of Exodus 31 again. It was to be a sign between God and his people for all generations that they may know that God is the one who sanctifies them. And so here we see our answer to what is the Sabbath. It is a day of rest and remembrance between God and his people with a focus on God's sanctifying work in them. So why is there confusion and conflict in our text today? Well, to answer this, we need to see our second question. And our second question is, who was the Sabbath for? Who was the Sabbath for? And this is where things get a little 
dicey. As with many things, we are not content to leave well enough alone. A good thing is given and we need to complicate it. This was the case with the Sabbath. The rabbis were not content to leave well enough alone. In addition to the actual law that was given by God, there was also the rabbinical law. God's law with man-made commentary added to it. Man-made additions placed on top of it. This is where some people, even in our day, as they read through God's word, especially in the New Testament, get their understanding of how the Sabbath was to function. They took the principle of the law and they added to it. So they would set man-made additives to God-prescribed instruction, and now it was elevated to be revered as if it was the law. And this is the case in our text today. Let's jump back in Mark now, looking at verses 23 and 24. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and, they, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the Pharisees probably have two issues in mind here. One is a law about traveling on the Sabbath, and the other is a law about harvesting on the Sabbath. Now, about the traveling, according to rabbinical law, you could move on the Sabbath. Don't know how they would prevent you from moving at all, but you could move on the Sabbath. But you could not go more than 1,999 steps in a day. All of us in our culture who love our fitness trackers, we would seriously freak out with this prescription about this rabbinical law. We go one step over 1,999. I do that in the first hour and a half I'm awake in the morning. Then we have broken the law of observing the Sabbath. We have to get our steps in. So the first was about traveling. And so as they're going through the grain field, these fields would have been very large. It would have been very easy to log 1,999 steps. But the second one has to do with harvesting. Now, the first one, we could all agree that is absolutely, completely absurd and ludicrous. But the second one is a little more to the point. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 clearly state that every living thing, every living thing in the house was to rest on the Sabbath, field animals included. So harvesting of any kind was clearly off the table, clearly not something that you are allowed to do. But is what the disciples are doing here truly harvesting? Additionally, there was provision for doing exactly what the disciples are doing as it related to human need. Deuteronomy 23, 25 is where the provision is for plucking the head of the grain, but you just couldn't put a sickle to it. So you could break it off, but you couldn't use a tool to harvest it. So why is this a big deal in Mark chapter two? We might see a little more where the Pharisees are coming from if we look at Luke's account from this same encounter. Both Matthew and Luke record this exact same section of text. They add a little bit different, slightly altered, but very much the same. But Luke adds one important detail. The disciples didn't just pluck the heads off. No, they took those heads of grain and they rubbed them in their hands so that they could extract the grain from the stalk. Oh, 
the horror. The point of absurdity here is that for the Pharisees, man-made rule had kept triumphing over basic human need like hunger. It was things exactly like this that would lead Jesus to say in Matthew 23 in his woes against the scribes and the Pharisees that they neglect weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness while tithing their mint, dill, and cumin. He tells them that they should have done both. And he does this by talking about how they strain gnats while swallowing camels, helping to point out the absurdity of focusing on what is small while, while trying to choke down what is large. And this always is what happens when we let man-made rules masquerade as religious practice. And Jesus is going to help them see this by going straight to the text. Straight to the text. He calls to their mind a story from David when in a time of hunger, David and his men ate the bread of the presence. Now, this wasn't common bread that the priests would put out for anyone to eat. No, this was holy bread. It was just reserved for the priests. Now, we need to know something about Jesus bringing up this encounter for 1 Samuel 21. First, David is revered as the model king by the Jewish people. The king from whom the Messiah would come. The king that they would expect to behave and be like. To bring up David would cause the ears of these Pharisees to perk up. But additionally, referencing David here doing something that was not allowed to do would force the Pharisees to admit some things. This was to expose the hearts of the Pharisees and the absurdity of their rules. So these guys are here plucking a few heads of grain while getting their steps in and you're condemning them, but you've got nothing to say about David. Or do you not even know that story? And this is Jesus's point here. And he concludes it with these words. And the answer to our second question here is in verse 27. Who is the Sabbath for? Jesus tells us the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now understand, Jesus is not talking anything about the goodness of Sabbath rest or the observance of that day. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about what we seek to elevate is priority and most important. And there is much to unpack here by way of application. And we still have one more question to answer. But here at the core of what Jesus is doing is exposing what lies in our hearts. Jesus is here in this text rooting out heart idolatry in the Pharisees. But he's rooting out heart idolatry in us as well. Because this is what these Pharisees have done. They have taken a good gift from God. Rest and remembrance. Great good gifts. We would all hopefully agree with that. But they have made it into an idol to be worshipped. They've taken rest and they have made it labor. And not just any labor. Absurd labor. In addition to the thing about the steps, they also had multiple provisions, even one about tying a knot. So let's say you're being careful not to take too many steps and you're in your sandals and you get a knot in them. You can't untie that knot. You can't untie it. It's there to be knotted the rest of the day. 
I wonder if hopping to get back to your house counted as steps or if that was something different. And this is what happens when we take good things that God gives us and we elevate them to God-like places in our lives. This can be anything, literally anything. It can be work, it can be marriage, it can be our families, extended families and those in our homes. It can be kids, fitness, money, food, sex, material things. The list could go on and on and on. When good gifts are elevated to a level they are not to be elevated to in our lives, they become idols. Good things in places where they're not supposed to be now are our idols. Tim Keller has written and spoken about this topic of heart idolatry in many spaces, and he puts idolatry like this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what you only can give to God. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I'll have value and then I will feel significant and secure. Even more simply than that, in a sermon and then an article that he would write about work, Tim Keller defines it this way. Idolatry is simply when we allow a good thing to become an ultimate thing. And our idols are most times the very things that keep us from resting in the gospel at best. And they keep us from responding to the gospel at worst. These Pharisees cannot see that the one that they have waited for, the promised one, is in their midst. Because they are too busy being ticked off that he parties with sinners and that his disciples don't fast and that they pluck a few heads of grain. They think they are keeping the law, but they are missing the gospel. These to whom was given the law and the prophets are missing the very one who the law and the prophets was telling them about. And we need to ask, how is this true in our hearts today? Because we are guilty of the exact same things. Sure, we won't get mad today if someone works, or if they go to the store, or if they cook a meal. We won't get mad if somebody goes and logs out four miles so their Fitbit hits a high number like I'm going to do this afternoon, or if they go run a 5K. But we will get mad if we see someone defying our man-made additions to the gospel. We will absolutely get mad about that. In our hearts, all of us, every one of us, at some level, are little legalists looking to ourselves to justify what we feel is supreme. Because this is idolatry at its heart. We just trade one set of rules and obedience for another when we are willing to submit ourselves to many false masters. For the Pharisees, it was the idol of the law, but for us, it can also be the idol of any number of things. Greed, pride, control, power. That doesn't even mention all the ways those roots manifest themselves in really, really, really ugly branches that spread and take over our lives and our hearts. 
And this is sobering. Because right now, as we see this text, all of us should see ourselves and identify ourselves with the Pharisees in judgment more than with the disciples plucking heads. So where is our hope? Because that does not feel hopeful. Our final question is where we find our hope. And our final question we have to ask is, who has authority? Who has authority? And praise God it isn't these Pharisees. (laughs) And praise God it's not us in our own self-righteousness either. No, Jesus' words in verse 28 give us our hope. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is not just Lord of the Sabbath. He is also Lord of all of our issues and mess as well. The ultimate aim of idolatry is self-righteousness. Trying to prove ourselves righteous and acceptable by the thing that has our hearts most in that moment. And though the issue here in this text appears to be legalism, there is much self-righteousness in lawlessness as well. The answer to legalism and the Pharisees here isn't unadulterated freedom. No, there's just as much sin and a lack of grace in that as there is in record keeping. No, the answer here is only Jesus. Both legalism and lawlessness lead us away from the gospel. Legalism says I am justified by all that I am not doing. Lawlessness says I am justified by all that I am permitted to do. Both of these show a lack of understanding of law and grace. Two things that we pit at odds that are beautiful friends and meant to constantly walk in lockstep together. When understood properly, law and grace blow the trumpet of gospel truth that shouts I am justified not by what I can or can't do but I am justified by all that Christ has done. And that alone is my boast, and that alone is my hope, and that alone is my plea. That is the only thing that I have. His authority over the Sabbath in my very life, and I hope your life too, is never to be in question. In his death on the cross, in the place of sinners like me and like you, and in his conquering sin, death, and the grave by his rising and triumphing over them when he rose from the dead. His rule and reign is not to be questioned. And this is our hope. It is our only hope. Without that, we are without hope. If we look to anything other than Jesus alone to justify us, we will never be satisfied. We will always be searching and we will always be empty. Friend, if you are here in this field today or you are home watching this stream or you will watch this some later time, please know that no amount of Sabbath keeping or Sabbath breaking will make you right with God. It is only resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross in the place of sinners like all of us and like all that we see in our text here today that can do that for you. So how do we apply this today? 
a word for all of our idolatrous hearts, whether they are prone to legalism or lawlessness. Some simple reminders that can help us when we feel our hearts being gravitated and being pulled away from the freedom that the gospel truly does provide. Where God in his word clearly speaks against things, where his word is clear and we know that we are forbidden from that practice, then we also joyfully reject what God forbids. And where God in his word clearly speaks for things, we rejoice in those things and we gladly enjoy those things. And where it isn't clear what is said, we seek wisdom, much wisdom. But we don't avoid out of fear, nor do we embrace out of arrogance or ignorance. And we always ask ourselves, is embracing or avoiding this thing causing me to love Jesus and his church more? Is it causing me to show the gospel in all of its beauty to a lost watching world? Is it causing others to rest in the hope that only Christ can give? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. And as we conclude our time and conclude our time today, thinking back and looking at our text and understanding what are the facts. These are the facts. Christ is supreme and we are not. And don't let that land on you like condemnation today, friend, because it's not. That is comfort. That is the greatest comfort that anyone can hear. Because resting in his authority allows us to enjoy Sabbath, not resist it. It allows us to enjoy rest and not run from it. Christ has done for us all we could never and would never do on our own so that we can find Sabbath rest in him alone. Sabbath rest for today, Sabbath rest for tomorrow, and by God's grace, in the gospel, Sabbath rest for all eternity. Wherever you are, whatever you need today, that is provided for you in Christ. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord over all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this text. Father, we thank you for the tenderness of Jesus, even in strong rebuke here. Father, next week, as we are going to continue to see Christ's authority in a far different context, Father, I pray that we would understand the beauty of that comforting rest today. That, Father, for those that have never repented and believed and placed their faith and trust in you, that they would see for the first time the need to lay down all that they are keeping and know that rest can only be found in you. Father, for those that have been saved, that are here today, that are struggling with whatever they may be struggling with, Father, I pray that they would hear those same words of comfort, that you are Lord of the Sabbath, and that we would all find our rest in you. May we have rest today. In the name of Jesus, amen.